The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together again this morning. I trust you're having a good week. Who slept the uh, sleep of the righteous last night? And who had no rest like the wicked? Uh, so a few of you, okay. It's uh, always interesting, isn't it? Adjusting to uh, adjusting to a new bed, a soft mattress. Very soft mattresses here. I'm used to uh, a slightly firmer mattress. If somebody told me to sleep on the floor. Um, anyway, as we uh, come together this morning, we're focusing again on the Word of God and what God is saying to us about the calling of His church. So before we begin, why don't we pray? together. Heavenly Father, we thank you, first of all today, for the revelation of your Son, Jesus Christ, the living Word. We thank you that you have opened our hearts to your truth by your Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that you have not left us in the darkness of our ignorance, nor have you left us with our own ideas or impressions, our own notions of truth, but you have revealed yourself to us. and You've given us your word as a lamp to our feet, as a light to our path. Open our eyes, Lord, this morning as David prayed that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, we're considering the uh, calling of the church together this week. And for those of you who haven't been uh, following along thus far or have uh, sort of dragged yourself out of bed this morning for the first morning session, let me just do a very, very brief recap of uh, what we've said so far and then uh, indicate where we're going this morning. Uh, On Sunday night, we talked about hope and the fact that uh, it really takes hope even to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, to work to any purpose, to work to any end at all, we need hope. And uh, we saw that it was a mark of the true church of godliness to have hope. And not just in the sense of transcendent hope, hope for heaven, but hope in history. We saw that Abraham uh, believed God and left his home uh, city and went out to the place where God would show him in hope. So we spoke about hope and this necessity of hope, and really I said that nothing else that I say this week would make any sense at all unless we have hope in our hearts for the church. And uh, yesterday we considered uh, the origin and nature uh, of the church uh, together, and uh, we considered the fact that the church did not begin uh, with uh, Peter and Paul, but actually the called out people of God began right back uh, in the Old Testament with uh, Abel. And uh, we saw how God has uh, unveiled progressively his covenant of promise to his people. We saw something in a sense of the through line of Scripture. In fact, we read uh, Galatians 3 that the Scripture foreseeing, verse 8, that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. 
So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So we saw that the called out people of God are called out in terms of his kingdom purposes. And we saw that there is a continuity in God's purpose, not discontinuity. In other words, we can look at Scripture much like an, uh, more like an onion uh, than sort of two lines that uh, never meet. Uh, as we unwrap Scripture, we find more and more of the fullness of God's promise being unveiled and revealed as we move through the Scriptures till Him who is the fullness in every, in every way is revealed in Jesus Christ. Who was it who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush? Who was it who was the rock which followed God's people in the wilderness? Paul tells us the rock was Christ. And when uh, Jesus cleanses the temple uh, twice in his earthly ministry and he's asked, on whose authority are you doing these things? You're not even 50 years old. And what does Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. So we saw that we can't divide Christ against himself, but there is a continuity of his self-revelation. And then in indicating, as we looked at the calling and nature of the church, in indicating some of the impediments to our understanding of this, we saw that the risk, the danger, is jettisoning God's word in any way and faithlessness to what God is calling us to be and to do, that we need to be faithful to the whole counsel of God and that the church will be truncated in its calling and mission and vision if we ignore the charter for the kingdom of God. So we talked about the fact that we're not saved to no end or no purpose, but in terms of the kingdom of God and his purposes, and it's that very calling that gives us hope for history. So that's something of a brief recap of what we've said so far. Today, uh, I want to focus on one of the specific aspects of our calling, the apostolic calling of the church. So turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 11, uh, we'll read verse 11 through 16. Now today, again, as we did yesterday, we're going to uh, have an opportunity for questions um, after this session, about 11 o'clock. I do want to encourage you in that regard. You know, one of the most important things about a week like this is that you do question the preacher. Uh, it is important. In fact, it was the practice of the early church. It was the common practice of the early church that after there had been uh, a message, there, was quest there were questions. It was the, that was the tradition of the church for many centuries. Uh, so that you didn't just sit and hear a sermon and then go out but you had the opportunity to ask questions. Test everything that you hear. If it's not according to the word and to the testimony, we have to test what is said. And I know you're here to rest and relax and recuperate, and maybe you don't want to think too critically about what you're hearing, but it's important that we do ask questions of the text and ask questions of, of what we are hearing. And so do uh, hang around at 11, and um, we can talk about what was said yesterday and today and their integration and so forth. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And then turning with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 20, and I want to read verse 17 through 38 as we look at the apostolic example, the apostolic example in Acts chapter 20, verse 17 through 38. Acts 20. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke 
that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Well, there's so much that could be said both about Ephesians chapter 4 and about this wonderful passage about the apostolic example that the challenge is, of course, uh, selecting what to say and what not to say. But I want to focus specifically on the question of the apostolic calling and mission of the church. Notice in Ephesians 4 that the offices that God places in the church are not a collection of professionals who are there to do the work of the church for you. That's not what the text tells us, that here we have the functionaries, if you like, the professional paid officers who perform the ministry of the church, nor have we got a team of priests and performers who are uh, entertaining us or simply performing rituals for us. They are to equip the church. For what? For their works of service. The purpose of the offices that God has set in his church are to equip us, the diaconate, if you like, the ministers, for the work of service. Each of these offices prepares the church for service so that we're we're built together, we're knit together, we grow in knowledge and understanding so that we are able to carry out the mission which God is giving to us. Which does mean that the implication of Ephesians 4 is that the church has an apostolic, a prophetic, an evangelistic, and a Levitical or a teaching mandate. The church as a whole carries this mandate into the world. Now the Latin word for salvation, salve, literally means wholeness, wholeness, and it applies to the totality of our person. So as we are sent out into the world to, with the message of salvation, Paul calls it there in Acts 20, the message of the kingdom of God, we are moving out with a message of wholeness, of wholeness, of restoration in people's lives and The purpose of the offices in God's church is that we would grow up in every way into him, reaching that fullness of the measure of Christ. That's the purpose. That's why God has given us the offices in the church. Now, one of the offices that uh, is featured here that the Word of God speaks of is the office of the apostle. The Greek word is apostolos, and it literally means one sent forth. One sent forth. That's the literal meaning of the word apostolos. And interestingly enough, the word apostolos is used in relationship to the Lord Jesus himself. In Hebrews 3, verse 1, and in John 17, verse 3. In fact, he is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the one who was sent by God, wasn't he? He was sent out in terms of the mission. He highlights that mission when he opens the scroll uh, to Luke chapter, in Luke chapter 4, when he opens up the prophet Isaiah and he reads the Jubilee. He states his mission, that he's been sent into the world by God. Now, Jesus said something very important, of course, about our mission. He says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. As the Father sent me, 
so send I you. We are the ones who are now carrying then this message of reconciliation, of salvation, of wholeness into the world. So that, in the broadest sense, is the apostolic mandate. Now, of course, the church historically has believed a number of different things in different quarters of the church about the nature uh, and continuity of the apostle. Now, it seems clear to me, reading scripture, and as we, one of the uh, hermeneutical tools of biblical interpretation, uh, Hans has mentioned one of them, the, the Bible and the Bible, the Bible and Christ. One of the others is the Bible and tradition, the Bible and tradition. And as we look at the uh, historic understanding of the apostle, we see that the apostle, both in scripture and in the understanding of the early church, was a foundational office to the church. An apostle was one who had seen the resurrected Lord. Anybody seen the resurrected Lord here? Paul the apostle said he was one as one untimely born. Why? Because he was appeared to on the Damascus Road. The apostles were a group of people who worked miracles. They were foundational to the life of the church. They were conveyors also of the revelation of God. Now, it's been true in the history of the church that different points, different individuals have arisen and claimed to be apostles and claimed to extend the revelation of God. Let me give you some conspicuous examples. Muhammad is one example. Actually, Paul says, doesn't he, if men or angel preach to you any other message, let him be accursed. The claim of Muhammad was that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and delivered to him the Quran. We've had Mormonism and the Jehovah's Witnesses and various movements in the history of the church, in the history of Christendom, where people have risen up and said that they have received new revelation. Now, we recognize that the apostolic age did bring us new revelation, but that the canon is closed. Unless anybody here thinks they are delivering scripture to us. Uh, I mean, in 2,000 years, we haven't added, have we, to the word of God. Which means that, in a sense, whatever we believe about the apostolic gift, we will all agree, I hope, that the canon is closed. That there is no other apostle who could rise up and say, here is a new or additional word from God. God has spoken with finality in his word. That's why we need his word. Otherwise, we're left with the imagination of men. And that foundation cannot be relayed. The scripture says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So we can't re relay the foundation that was laid in the apostolic age. One of the great reformers, John Calvin, in commenting on 1 Corinthians 12, the parallel passage here, said this, We must note that some of the offices to which Paul is referring are permanent while others are temporary. The permanent offices are those which are necessary for the government of the church. The temporary ones, on the other hand, are those which were designed at the beginning for the founding of the church, the setting up of the kingdom of Christ, and which ceased after a time. For the Lord appointed the apostles so they might spread the gospel throughout 
the whole world. Now, what we notice about the apostolic age in particular was that there was a special period of special revelation in which remarkable, constant remarkable signs were accompanying the witness of the apostles. Whenever God is revealing himself by uh, giving special revelation, he always accompanied it in Scripture with remarkable signs. So let's take, for example, one of the most important periods of revelation, the time of the Exodus. When Moses, in the wilderness, is spoken to by God from the burning bush, and he has this encounter with God. He says, what's your name? Who shall I say is sending me? Who's going to believe me? Why would the people of Israel believe anything I've got to say? I need to know who you are so I can find out who's sending me. What does God say to him? I am that I am. You are to say, I am is sending you. Oh. It's a very interesting name that God gives to himself there, isn't it? And as we've said, Jesus echoed this. Before Abraham was, I am. He's saying that, God is saying that he is the source of all definition. When you name something or name somebody, you are defining it. Or that person, you're, in a sense, putting a limitation on them. We're told that Adam named, he was the first zoologist, he defined, he named the animal kingdom. He put a limit on it. Well, you can't name or define God. He says, I am that I am. I am the source of all definition. And when Moses leads out the people of uh, Israel out into the wilderness, well, we have the ten plagues upon Egypt. We've got the pillar of fire. We've got the cloud. We've got the fire and so forth and the mountain and all of those things which was demonstrated to the people that Moses is my servant. Jesus' ministry was accompanied by consistent, constant, miraculous works. And the apostles, it was said that Peter's shadow even healed people. Now, am I saying that God doesn't do anything remarkable today? No, absolutely not. God gives gifts of healings, and he gives gifts to his church, And God still is in the business of surprising us, isn't he, with his work. But I think we would all agree that we do not see the same sort of manifestation of power that the apostles consistently saw. In other words, Peter, at no time do we read that he prayed for somebody and it didn't work. So he said, come back next week, we'll try again. He commanded, the apostles commanded, and it was done because God was setting his seal upon the apostolic witness. I think we can say in an unusual degree, in an unusual degree, there were remarkable signs. I can hear some of you Pentecostals out there wondering how orthodox I am at this point. I grew up in the Pentecostal church. My father's a Pentecostal pastor. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe in God's power to heal and to transform people's lives. But I also recognize that there was something peculiarly unique about this age of revelation. 
one of the most notable things about Muhammad's life and the Quran is that there are no miracles. Now the hadith, the traditions, later tried to add, uh, recognizing its inferiority to the Christian witness, began to add the idea of the miraculous to Muhammad's life. In one occasion, he, it is alleged that he reached up into the sky and cut the moon in half with his sword. So we have the ridiculous, but we do not have any witnesses to any miracles. There is no resurrection. There is no healing. The miracle of Islam is supposedly the military victories that Muhammad accomplished, 66 military campaigns and then his conquest of Mecca, um, and also the giving of the Quran itself. That is the primary miracle. But who knows what was said to Muhammad in a cave and by whom? Nothing was done in the dark in Jesus' ministry. These works were done in public. And there was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I've spent too long on that. My point is that there is something peculiar and unique about this apostolic period. So when we speak of the apostolic calling of the church then, if I am saying that in the strictest sense there are no apostles as there were in the foundational period of the church, in what sense is the church today apostolic? Well, the apostolic emphasis, the apostolic character of the church is in God's sending of his covenant people into the world. We are still all sent ones in the literal understanding of apostolos, we are sent out in terms of the mission of God. We are equipping the church then. The offices are equipping the church for that very work of service. If you will forgive me for quoting John Calvin again, not because I simply think he has a weight of authority, though I do believe that there are teachers in the church that we need to take seriously. That is because I think he's right when he comments on Ephesians 4, God might himself have performed this work, that is the work of the mission, if he had chosen, but he has delegated it to the ministry of people. If the church is built up by Christ alone, it is also for him to prescribe the way in which it shall be built. The church is the common mother of all the godly, which bears, nourishes, and governs in the Lord, both kings and commoners, and this is done by the ministry. Those who neglect or despise this order want to be wiser than Christ. Woe to their pride. In employing men's work for accomplishing their salvation, God has conferred on people no ordinary honor. In other words, what Calvin is highlighting here is that there is a remarkable privilege and honor that you and I have been given that Jesus says, as I have been sent by my Father. Now I am sending you into the world in terms of this kingdom mandate as sent once in terms of my salvation and my kingdom. He has chosen his church. Think about it. God could have used angels, couldn't he? Don't you think that would have been a bit more dramatic? The angels appearing in various parts of the world. Declaring a message, performing great works, great feats, and so on and so forth. No, but he has chosen you and me, earthen vessels, broken, fallible, weak individuals to be the bearers of his truth. I think that's a remarkable privilege. 
In what sense, then, are, is there an apostolic succession? Well, those God has called and sent in terms of his mission, that's the sense in which we succeed the apostles. Now, when we use the term apostolic succession, what's the first thing most, Roman, most uh, evangelicals think of is, oh, that's Roman Catholicism, isn't it? Because they talk about the apostolic succession. Now, there have been different understandings then of what we mean by our succession from the apostles. All of the church believes in some form of succession from the apostles. What do we mean by it? Well, in the Roman tradition, there is this idea of what we call tactual succession, which is that there has been allegedly an unbroken chain of bishops laying hands on each other to confer authority, uh, to transubstantiate communion elements and absolve sin and so forth. Now, that is not a doctrine that we in the evangelical church share. At least, it's not one that I share. But we should take seriously the, the idea of succession from the apostles as it is indicated to us in the Word of God. One of the problems, of course, of the idea of tactual succession is that if, you, if a, a bishop is given this authority and power through the laying on of hands, technically speaking, if they become apostate and wander from the faith, they've still got those powers and abilities because the succession is simply tactual. That's why popes in the medieval period could be using the Vatican as a brothel and still feel that they were the vicar of Christ. They've had the tactual succession. It also led to a doctrine of baptismal regeneration, which is the idea, again, that it's just the tactual act that does the regenerating. But my purpose this morning is not to go into a lengthy critique of the Roman doctrine. We understand that there is a spiritual succession, however, and that to be called of God and affirm the faith, that's why we confess the faith, of the church. That's why we confess, confess the creeds. That's why in the, uh, the liturgies of many of our churches, although it seems to have dropped out of our practice today increasingly, we confess our faith together. The Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We confess the faith of the church and in so doing, in confessing our faith, we affirm our succession from the Apostles as God's church. We're not an island. You're not an island. You, the, the church didn't appear with the 21st century, did it? We are recipients. What have we learned that we did not hear, that was not given to us? So there's a sense in which there is a spiritual succession. The danger, of course, in saying that it's only spiritual is that, well, I'm a successor of the apostles because I also confess the word of God, is that... Uh, there can be an anarchic sort of sense that uh, anybody can rise up and say, well, I am a, I've succeeded from the apostles because it's just spiritual. I confess the same faith. So we've had some pretty bizarre instances in the history of the church of people believing that their own private revelations carry this unique authority. The Quakers would be one example. The inner light. Scripture becomes de-emphasized. And the inner light emphasized, so emphasized that actually it even sets aside the word of God. 
But Paul makes clear in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16, 4 through 16, that the church is not simply a collection of individuals, but we are one body, one faith, one baptism, and we are called in various degrees of ministry, including the ordained ministry, to seek to have both spiritual succession, but also the partnership and recognition of the church. So we don't simply go out and do things on our own in a maverick sort of way, but we've got to set offices in the church so that we are submitted to the duly constituted offices that God has ordained. In other words, when somebody feels called to the ministry, what's the first thing we should be asking or testing? Is the church affirming and recognizing that there is this gift and this calling manifest in their lives? Do they rightly divide the word of truth? Do they have a a godly life? Do they manage their home well? Is there evidence that this calling is real? When I was growing up in this little town uh, of devices in the southwest of England, an unusual street preacher arose in the town who called himself the Apostle of Devizes. And he was repeatedly involved in fights with the police. So I did quickly question his apostolic succession. Um, You can have almost anybody claiming anything for themselves if there is not the recognition of the church. The church is not an incidental body in the life of the kingdom of God. Paul in Acts 20, what does he do in his last will and testament? He calls the elders of the church together. And he gives them instruction. The church, the authority of the church is very important. One of the reasons why, and you may be a parent here or you may have gone through seminary yourself, many of our seminaries today, even here in Canada, are not helping the church. In fact, there there are students that I encounter regularly in the city who come to Westminster whose faith has been almost destroyed by their seminary. And one of the reasons for that is that the seminary has ceased to be under the governance of the local church. The seminary thinks, well, it can speak uh, against the church or outside the authority of the church. It's got some kind of independent status. The seminary has no independent status. It should be under the authority of God's church. And there is always a danger in, uh, and I've worked in them, parachurch organizations, that there is a sense of a a lack of submission to the local church. We need to be a people of God who are submitted to the church. doesn't mean we buy everything we hear. If there's error, we have to challenge it. But it does mean that we don't have an anarchic, individualistic attitude that is so prevalent today, especially in my generation. The church is like optional. While I do, you know, internet church. Or, you know, I just watch church on TV. And it's impersonal. It's non-relational. There's danger and there's risk in that. Our succession in the mission is that we are connected to a local body of believers as we move forward together as the church. Can I get an amen to that anywhere? Good. Amen. Feeling like a heretic here. Okay. (laughs) Today, then, uh, one of the things that you find when people dissent from the church is not because they say, well, thus says the Lord, here is what God has said, and uh, 
holding our leaders to account in terms of the standard of God's word is because people say to you, well, I feel, you know, I think, I was thinking, you know. Well, so what? I mean, that's true, friends. It's not in the end what you feel or what you think. If there is good ground for your leaving a church, because it's biblically, then you've got no business being there. You're right. But if it's because you just feel that, you know, it's not really fitting your, you know, you're not sure about the worship style and, you know, it doesn't really fit your tastes and you just want to shop a bit more, that, that friends, that's ungodly. We shouldn't treat the church of God like that. We are given this apostolic mission and sent out together, not because our allegiance is to a denomination, but because our allegiance is to God. And that succession then means submission to God and to his word and to his church, where it's properly constituted. And we give Scripture more authority than our own opinions. Because it's Scripture which confers us with authority, not the other way around. I don't give God's Word as an apologist any authority whatsoever by my defense of it. God's Word already has authority. Christ already has the authority. I'm simply releasing that authority as I'm faithful to it. When we depart from God's word, we cease to be under authority. So we continue in this apostolic ministry. Paul declares in Romans 15:16 that he is a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service, this is the direct quote, of the gospel of God, 50, uh, Romans 15:16, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Let me read that to you again. It's a real mouthful. Paul declares that he is a, quote, minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What a remarkable text that is. The allusions are obviously clearly to the priesthood in the Old Testament. And he says, I'm an underpriest of Jesus Christ bringing in the Gentiles. Now, again, we evangelicals don't like that word priest too much. It's really an abbreviation or abridgment or even a corruption of the word presbyter. And I think I mentioned yesterday that the College of Cardinals was once made up of actually 70 laymen who were elders in the Old Testament pattern, but they weren't ordained presbyters. Now, here's something I really want you to take away from this morning. I'm the pastor of a local church. I am a presbyter or a pastor. You may be a pastor here or an elder in your local church, but I am not the minister. I am not the minister. You are the ministers. I am a minister. I am not the minister. Some of you looking at me blankly, that's good. We have confused the office with the role of every believer. We are a diaconate. The church, every member of the church is the diaconate. We are servants, ministers of God. That's our function. If you are a homemaker, you are a minister of God. If you are a butcher, you are a minister of God. If you are a car mechanic, you are a minister of God. If you are a banker, you are a minister of God. If you are a student, you are a minister of God. We are all ministers. 
The use of the term minister to avoid the term presbyter, priest, or pastor has led at times to this false idea that the minister has a holy calling and everybody else has a secular one. Let me make something abundantly clear to you this week. There is nothing that I do that is any more holy than what you do in your vocation. Nothing. Now, it is true that there is a responsibility and a privilege given. It's, an, it's a privilege, and with all privilege comes responsibility, the preaching of God's word. But I do not have a sanctified vocation whilst yours is not sanctified. Yours is as sanctified and as holy unto the Lord as mine. If, whether you eat or you drink, do it all for the glory of God. You are as much a minister of God as Hans or myself or your local pastor, or anybody else. You are sent out. Jesus didn't say, as I'm sending out the pastors, so I, as God the Father sent me, so I send out the pastors, the ordained ministry. He sends out his church. All of us are called to minister for him. Now, I said yesterday that the, the, the calling of the church has been truncated and limited artificially, and one of the reasons we're not succeeding in our time as a church, on the whole, in Canada, is because we've done this. What that does, if the minister is the one who has the holy calling, the sanctified vocation to be the minister, then we consume his ministry. Is that what Paul tells us to do in Ephesians 4? No, they are there to equip you and me, to equip the church for the work of ministry, for the work of service. We must not imprison ministry within the four walls of a church. I've said to my own people at Westminster, we have to rid ourselves of any notion that the paid staff, the pay exist to do the work while the rest of us consume the ministry. Now you say to me, hang on a minute, Joe. Look, in our church, they've already got enough people on the ushering team They've already got enough people serving in the nursery. And Gladys and Ethel, they already do all of the cakes. I can't get a look in. And somebody else is doing the flower arranging. And so what possible role is there for me in the church? Now, that's exactly the problem. What, is, what have you just done when you say something like that? You've limited ministry to the walls of the institution. You said that the ministry happens in the Kariakos as I said yesterday, the Kariakon Doma, the building, the house of the Lord, whereas we are given in Scripture our marching orders and sent out in Christ's name. Let me give you an architectural example. When we used to build churches, we built sanctuaries for worship and the administration of sacraments. We did not build vast, unending structures where you could get your hair cut, go to the gym, take a swim, do everything else in the church so you don't have to be out there. Churches were built, if you go to Europe, they are built in the center of a town or village, as the, and they were the most splendidly ornate or decorated building, and they have a big spire. Jenny and I were on holiday with our children in Devon back in England a few weeks ago, and we were driving back through Devon near where I used to live, and one of the things that immediately stuck out to me again was that in, in the hills, all you could see driving through Devon as you pass every village is a big spire. It was the source of definition and meaning. It says the church here, God is the source of all definition and meaning. 
Now the most expensively and ornate beautiful buildings in our towns and cities are government buildings. That are government buildings. And when we put up churches, often we put up a... Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to have facilities. I'm saying that the architecture points to something important. That the mission, friends, is out there. Now, if you're making the cakes, wonderful. We need people to... If you're making the coffee, if you're helping in the, the children, brilliant. That is ministry. But if you're a banker, you are also ministry, a minister unto the Lord. If you're a homemaker, you're a minister unto the Lord, is my point sinking in. I may be a presbyter, but you are a minister. And the role of the diaconate and the ministry in the history of the church and in Scripture, we see it immediately that uh, in the book of Acts, when there is a dispute breaking out between the widows of the Gentiles and of the Jews, and there is, it is sensed that there is some kind of preferential treatment going on for the Jewish widows, what happens is seven people are appointed seven deacons are appointed men of God to handle the distribution of food because the church saw it as its responsibility to look after widows and orphans. St. John Chrysostom was looking after 50,000 of the poor and the widows and the indigent in Constantinople when the church numbered only 100,000. We'll touch on those things later in the week. In uh, Geneva... Calvin's Geneva, Zwingli, Zurich, Busa, Strasbourg, Strasbourg, Knox's, Knox's Scotland, the church took all of these responsibilities seriously, that it was ministering in all of these areas unto the Lord. Now let's conclude with looking at the apostolic example that Paul sets us in Acts 20, just to note a few things in these last few minutes. To be an apostolic, to be an apostolic church is not just to hold the apostles' doctrine. It's not simply to recognize the church as in the apostolic succession. It is to follow the apostolic example. Paul could say, couldn't he, what a remarkable thing, imitate me as I imitate Christ. There is an example that he was setting for the church and for God's people that is so very important. And he gathers the church leaders that he'd planted east and west of the Aegean Sea here in Acts 20, and in a sense gives them his last will and testament for those churches. And he urges them on to vigilance because of false teaching. He calls them to faithfulness. He calls them to faithfulness in shepherding. He calls them to faithfulness to the apostles' doctrine. In verse 18 through 21, he reminds the church of his manner of life. So he tells them he's been faithful in preaching the kingdom of God. He says in verse um, 27 that I did not, I, was, I, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He commends them, in verse 32, to the word of his grace. And in verses 18 through 21, he says, Look at my manner of life while I was amongst you. I served, I was faithful, I was humble, I endured danger and hostility and sorrows. I was faithful in instruction. Many of us would think if somebody said that to us today, they were bragging. They're a bit of a show-off, wouldn't we? You know, that's a bit of a show-off. You know, get some humility, brother. But actually, Paul could faithfully say, I've done these things. So much so, I'm free from the blood of all men. Because I've declared the kingdom of God and the whole 
counsel of God to you. In verse 22 through 24, his apostolic motivation comes out. In fact, he tells us that he's quite ready to surrender his liberty. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. What a marvelous statement. His priority was to fulfill the task that God had given to him. And he tells us in verse 27, he's held fast to the kingdom of God. He's planted these churches and he shares no guilt for any man's blood because he did not hold back from the whole counsel of God. In verse 32 through 35, Paul bids them farewell. And he tells them that they wouldn't be alone. He says, you've got the word of God, the word of his grace. The Holy Spirit has been given to you, and the word of God is dwelling in you richly. He's still with us by his spirit. Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And so Paul commits them to this and commends them to the word of God. We saw yesterday that that when Jesus was dealing with temptation in the wilderness, he didn't say, well, you know what, I'm really feeling this today, I'm not that hungry. Well, you know what, I uh, I had a good sleep, I'm in the mood to resist the enemy today, I'm not going to, no. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 6.16, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The psalmist says in Psalm 138, verse 2, You have magnified your word above all your name. And so Paul commits the church to his gracious word. The uh, great New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce says this. He says, In due course, Paul, with all the apostles, passed from the earthly life. But the teaching which they left behind to be guarded by their successors, as Paul repeatedly, of course, said to Timothy, as a sacred deposit preserved not only in their memory, but eventually in the New Testament scriptures, remains to this day as the word of God's grace. And those are most truly in the apostolic succession who receive this teaching along with the rest of holy writ as their rule of faith and life. And then Paul adds something very important. He says, I served with my own hands, my own brothers and sisters. I wasn't covetous. I provided for myself. I provided for those who were with me, showing that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We know Paul was a tent maker, of course. And he knew it was his right to earn his living from the gospel. He said, I've labored, worked with my own hands, not to be a burden, but so that I can actually be a blessing to others, so that I can minister to others. His example was such that when Paul left, they weren't cracking open the champagne bottles. Yeah, you know, Paul's on his way. Were they? What does it say that they did when Paul departed? They fell on his neck and they wept. 
That is what the, that should be the impact of our life on the lives of others. That when Paul, the great apostle, who it is said in tradition was a stooped man with a serious eye condition, whose physical appearance was not impressive, who was not a great orator, it was said he had the face of an angel. Because the word of God dwelt in him so richly. And they wept. I love those passages. Those passages of Scripture say something sometimes in the implicit more than the explicit. Because we weren't dealing with uh, superhumans here. They weren't stoics. When Paul left, they wept about it. They didn't want to see him go. The apostolic zeal was such that there was a militant spirit in the church. Now that word militant has been hijacked by Islam today. How many of you older people remember your pastors in the mid or early 20th century using the phrase, the church militant? Some of you. Maybe you still hear it used. problem if you talk about militant Christianity today is people think you you must be uh, uh, on board with Islamism or some kind of uh, all-conquering imperial agenda. But the missionary apostolic church had a militant agenda. It was moving forward. It was victorious in heart. It believed that Christ had the victory. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. Read it in your own time today. That Christ is far above all rule, all principality, all power. He's above every name that is named in this age and in the age to come. And that he sends out his church in apostolic zeal. Let me conclude with this example. Have you all heard of William Carey? Great missionary to India at the close of the 18th century. Laid aside his work in the shoe shop, put down his hammer, said, I want to go to India to share the kingdom of God. He was rebuked, actually, by the uh, church authorities. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it without your help. That's what they told him. He wasn't satisfied with that, and despite the discouragements and the reprimands by the church, he went out to declare the kingdom of God in Calcutta, at great cost to himself and his family, if you read his story. He had no peace while the church did nothing. Not only did this lead to the Christian faith being reintroduced into India in a powerful way, it led actually to radical social change in India. In fact, there is a law on the statute books of India today called Carey's Law. Carey's Law forbade the burning of widows on the funeral pyres of their husbands. Because when the gospel of the kingdom goes into a place, it doesn't just offer salvation from hell to heaven. It offers the kingdom of God. And when you and I share the gospel in our families and our communities and our cities and our towns and our villages, it doesn't just mean that a few people confess and confess a creed. It means that their lives are radically transformed. And it means that lives and nations are changed. One of the great American Baptist preachers of the last century, the Reverend R.C. Campbell, wrote this about the apostolic mission, and I promise you I close with two quotes from his book, Militant Christianity. He said this, The gospel 
It has made conquest of individuals, communities, nations, and continents, and leapt across oceans. It has aroused the complacent, indifferent, and dying churches into virility. It has caused the breath of God to burn in souls and flame on lips. It, is, it has as its prime objective the salvation of the world. Think of the opportunity given by God to win the lost, convert sinners, reform communities, transform nations, revolutionize continents, and completely evangelize the whole world. It proffers salvation, radiates sunshine, binds up broken hearts, opens prison doors, liberates captives, soothes sorrows, preaches the gospel to the poor. It points to the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. What did Carey do for India? Start paganism on a fast retreat. The progress of Christianity can be traced by the sacrifices of those who have given themselves for its promotion. He says it better than I could. He goes on, the gospel is our supreme, pos supreme possession. Its power will destroy the Babel towers of this world. It will send the fragments of pagan thrones and dictator crowns floating down the streams of decay. The world's security does not lie in great standing armies and navies, impregnable forts, fertile soil, gushing oil wells, bank vaults, or vast undeveloped resources. Our security lies in the proclamation and acceptance of the gospel of Christ. Just think of having by our side the one who stood upon the hill of time and saw the rise and fall of empires, rapid in their growth, colossal in their maturity, and grand in their decay. Yes, he who stood at the rise of a thousand governments, walks, talks, and companions with, and gives strength to his children as they serve him. That's the Christ who goes out with his church in the apostolic mission. And I can see by some of your faces you're not sure it's the same one. But it is, you know. It's the same Christ who was manifest through the ministry of the apostles, who has been manifest in the history of his church, who can be manifest through your life as a minister of God into the sphere that God has called you. Such a church is the foe of wrong, the friend of righteousness, and brings wholeness wherever it goes. D.L. Moody said, If God be your partner, make your plans large. If God be your partner, make your plans large. How large are your plans? How great is your confidence? in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the God and Father of the apostles as we stand in succession with them. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were sent into the world to save sinners and that as the Father sent you, so you now send us in a continuity of mission to declare the kingdom of God and the whole counsel of God to declare the redemption that there is in the cross of Jesus Christ and the liberty that there is in his covenant of promises. We thank you that we stand with our father Abraham and all the prophets in the long line of continuity of the revelation of your grace in history. Thank you for the great cloud of witnesses that stands with us today, both recent and ancient, in whose lives and testimony we can take heart and confidence that the same Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever.
Help us now today, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.